The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Ezra. I'll give you a minute to look that up. It is Ezra chapter 7, starting at verse 1. Now after this, the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, Ezra the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalem, son of Sedak, son of Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Moreah, son of Zerahiah, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up to Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up to Babylonia. And on the, third, on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in, in Israel. Now this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven. Peace. And now I make a decree that any one of the people of Israel or their priests or Levites in my kingdom who freely offers to go to Jerusalem may go with you. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and also to carry the silver and gold that the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem, with all the silver and gold that you shall, have, that you shall find in the whole province of Babylonia, and with the freewill offerings of the people and the priests, vowed willingly for the house of their God that is in Jerusalem. With this money, then, you shall go with all diligence, buy bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and you shall offer them on the altar of the house of your God that is in Jerusalem. Whatever seems good to you and your brothers to do with the rest of the silver and gold, you may do according to the will of your God. The vessels that have been given you for the service of the house of your God, you shall deliver before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever else is required for the house of your God, which it falls to you to provide, you may provide it out of the king's treasury. And I, Artaxerxes the king, make a decree that all the treasures in the province beyond the river, whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, requires of you, let it be done with all diligence, up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of oil, and salt without prescribing how much. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full for the house of the God of heaven, lest his wrath be against the realm of the king and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, 
custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, and other servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for the confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the word of the Lord. Good job, Mom. <clears throat> okay, um, well, Happy New Year. Um, I hope, um, yeah, hope everyone had a good rest and a good break uh, over the new year. Um, I know some of you weren't here last week, and what I'm about to say, don't hear me shaming you or uh, making you feel bad because I know a lot of you are great, uh, away for great reasons, but um, if you missed the gathering last week, you really missed a good one. Um, just to kind of fill you in on, on what we did, uh, we essentially started our year off uh, with a slightly different than what we usually do kind of gathering where uh, we got together and we prayed. And that was it. And we got together, we worshiped the Lord, uh, and we prayed. And um, it was a really simple but really sweet spirit-led time together. Um, and so if you missed that, don't worry, there's a lot more opportunities this year uh, to come for that kind of thing because we're doing a year of prayer in 2023. Um, what that doesn't mean is that come this time next year, we're going to have it all nailed down and like we've learned all we need to learn about prayer and we're implementing it perfectly. That's a lifetime uh, kind of journey. Um, what we are doing is we're starting that journey um, in a maybe kind of in a fresh way. Um, it simply means we're going to put our main focus and our main emphasis on uh, learning to pray um, and uh, depend on the Lord this year and all that we do. Um, we're going to try to figure out and implement some deep rhythms of, of dependency um, on Jesus, on his power, on his guidance, on his help, on his serving us in everything that we do. Um, because there's a lot to do, isn't there? Like, what a busy time to be alive. What a busy time to be part of uh, Jesus' church. Um, and, and that's okay. I know a lot of people are like, never be busy. Jesus was busy. Like, Jesus did a lot. Um, but one thing that he taught us in his life is that we're never to go under that activity alone, under our own strength, right? Um, in fact, he, he warns very sharply against that in John 15 when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Like, you need me. You, you need to be with me. You need to abide with me. You need to come to me for everything that you need and everything that you do. Um, and so we just want to be a church that believes Jesus when he says that and takes that seriously. So even in our holy busyness, okay, even in our kingdom activity, um, we want to learn this year 
to not let our doing for God ever outpace our being with Him. And we, we want to be a church that, that desperately and boldly and persistently prays. And we want to learn that it's our, and all the work that we do, our very first work is to know God in Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer. Um, and so that's what God has kind of placed on our, our elders' hearts this year. That's where we're going. I hope you're excited for that. And listen, if you're not excited for that, that's okay. I'm going to be praying that God puts an excitement in your heart uh, for just that. So um, I'm excited for it. Great. This morning, we're jumping back into Ezra. Um, I don't know about you, but um, I always find this time of year kind of hard, uh, like a, a little bit more tough. I know a lot of people love the new year. Um, love the like optimism, the positivity of all that's uh, kind of all the opportunities that are ahead of us. Um, and I get that and I, I feel some ways, but if I'm completely honest with you, I mostly feel a bit daunted, like I feel a little bit overwhelmed that we have to do it all again. Um, it's, it's starting again and here we, we go. Um, here it's time for self-examination, isn't it? Um, most of the New Year resolutions that we make like, I want to get better. Uh, I want to improve. I, I want to make more of a difference. And listen, that's, those, those aren't necessarily bad feelings, right? Um, I, I go in waves of being on, on Instagram. Like, sometimes I just get fed up with it, and I hate it, and I go off of it, and then I'll hop back on. I've been on it a good bit over the holidays, mainly because I want to see what you guys are, are eating. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed on my feed is so much self-improvement. Um, I don't know if it's the same for you. Um, here's how you improve so that you can change the world, um, which again, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, if, you, if you go read Genesis 1, God creates Adam and Eve, and the first thing he tells them to do is go and be fruitful and, and multiply, um, have, have flourish, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, cultivate it, right? So w- you are put on this earth to, to go and be fruitful and to cultivate it, um, so that feeling that you have to make a difference and to change the world, that's, that's a God-given mandate for you. Um, but there's so much on my social media feeds that say, do this to be successful. Do this if you want to make a change in the world, if you want to make a difference in the world. And so I actually believe God has ordained us to be in Ezra chapter 7 this morning. He just works things out perfectly so often. Because Ezra chapter 7 actually gives us a strategy for changing the world. Um, it's, it's, um, it's not very radical. Um, it's, it's not very uh, impressive sounding uh, in the eyes of the world. But Ezra chapter 7 shows us a man who changed the world by following this strategy. The strategy is this, that the most effective thing you can do to change the world is to study the Bible, do the Bible, and teach the Bible. Like, that is not going viral on Instagram, right? That, that is not going to sell. Um, but here's the most successful, the most important thing that you can do this year is study God's Word, do God's Word, and teach God's Word. And because, like, we all know, like, just look around. We all live. We all know deeply that this is a desperate world, right? And it's, it's a beautiful place, but it's broken. Um, and that's why we want to make it better. That's why we want to make a difference and well, what this world most desperately needs is men and women who know God. Like what the world most desperately needs is people who know God. 
Like, the world doesn't need more celebrities, right? The world doesn't need more influencers. We don't need more experts. We don't need more personalities. The world needs people who know God. Um, So do you want to know God? Do you want to make a difference in the world? Um, The best thing you can do to know God and to grow in your knowledge of Him is to study the Bible, to do the Bible, and teach the Bible. Um, Would you pray with me one more time and we'll look uh, closer at Ezra 7. God, we just thank you for revealing yourself to us uh, most supremely and most clearly in the sending of your son. Jesus, you you are where the the, the deity bodily dwells fully. We want to know God. We look to Jesus. Um, Jesus, we thank you for uh, giving us your word um, that we have that we can be, that we can study, that we can do, that we can teach, Lord, um, the best way to know you. So many great ways to, to know you, Lord, in this world, but the, the most supreme one, the best one, is to know you in your word. Um, Lord, make us a church that, that loves your word. And would you teach us this morning, we pray. Amen. As for seven, uh, let me quickly jog your memory, because I know we've been out of this for a little while. Um, This is a story um, about a people who have been in exile. Um, They've been uh, uh, away. They've been exiled because of their disobedience. And they are clinging on to hope in the now and not yet. That they are waiting for God to bring about the fulfillment of his covenant promises. Um, This is what they are hoping for, and he's he's beginning to do that in some ways. He's he's bringing them back to the promised land. Um, He's he's bringing them back to restore them, um, to to allow them to rebuild their city, rebuild their identity, their their community, really rebuild their relationship with God. Um, It's a story that shows us the faithfulness of God, though. Um, Their story is messy. And we see their, their story is filled with anticlimaxes. Um, they, they don't get things right every single time, every single time. I, I, not even Ezra. Um, but it's a story underneath all of that about God being faithful. And, and that's the same for us, right? Uh, we are clinging on to hope in the now and not yet. We, like them, are at this staging period. We're, we're waiting we're waiting on the Messiah to, to come again. We're waiting for him to bring us home. We're waiting for him to bring about the consummation of his covenant realities, right? And our story is messy, right? Our story is filled with anticlimaxes. And we don't get things right every single time. But God is faithful. And so we have so much to learn from this Remember Ezra and Nehemiah, it's really one book together, it's one scroll, it's meant to be read in one, um, and it's actually broken up into three main stories, um, these, these three waves of return, uh, returning of God's people from exile back into the promised land. Uh, remember, it's kind of like the Chronicles of Narnia, where it's telling one, one overall story, but it's told in separate kind of stories with different characters, and there's not necessarily a whole lot of overlap um, and so we covered the first story before Advent in the first six chapters of Ezra. Okay, that tells the story of the, the first return, uh, and it's led primarily by a guy called Zerubbabel, and he is given this task of returning and rebuilding the temple. 
So it's, a, it's this physical rebuild. Um, the temple was uh, without the sacrifices that are made in the temple. Um, they really couldn't have a relationship with God fully. The, the, the sacrifices are what dealt with their sins. Um, so that was an important step. That was the first, the first story. Um, and this morning we are beginning the second story. This is the second return, which is Ezra chapter 7 to 10. Um, sorry, my screen is just turned off. Um, Ezra chapter 7 to 10, which uh, is Ezra finally turns up, right? The man himself. Uh, maybe a bit of a Johnny come lately, right? Give me a second. Um, Ezra's finally on the scene, and he is given this task to return and to also rebuild, but physical rebuilding, it's a, it's a spiritual rebuilding. Um, he, he's going to rebuild the, the community of God by reestablishing the Torah, the law of God, and which obviously was, was much needed, right? These people have been in exile for 70 years. Um, yes, they've begun uh, to build their temple. They've begun to implement these new rhythms of, of worship. Uh, but after all of that time, they, they're in desperate need to be taught who God is again and, and to be taught his, his statutes and his rules. Uh, they need to be taught who they are and how they are to live according to God's ways. Um, and between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, there's a 60-year gap um, where a lot, of, a lot of experts will say this is where the, you insert the book of Esther. Um, but remember chapter 6, it ends with uh, Darius being the king on the Persian throne, um, and the temple is finally rebuilt. The people celebrate Passover. Do you remember that? Um, chapter 6 ends, and then there's this 60-year gap, um, and then chapter 7 begins, and we have a new king called Artaxerxes, and he sends Ezra to lead wave of returnees to Jerusalem to reinstate the Torah. So you have 70 years more since the first return to rebuild the temple. That's like 130 years that this community has lacked some solid Bible teaching. So they're, they're desperately in need of this. Um, chapter 7 really has three sections that we'll look at today. Um, the first section is verses 1 to 10, which introduce Ezra to us. They give us his lineage, his, his return, and the, the character of Ezra. Uh, the second section is verses 11 to 26, where we get another kingly decree. So chapter 1 began with the decree of Cyrus, who's the king at the time. Chapter 7 begins with the decree of Artaxerxes, giving Ezra the permission to go and return uh, to, to reinstate the Torah. And then it ends with the prayer in verses 27 to 28, where Ezra blesses God uh, for his mercy to his people. Let's look at the first section, verses 1 to 10, um, introduces us to Ezra. Who is Ezra? Um, the, the first thing that this tells us about Ezra is that he was a priest. So the first five verses uh, give us a quick genealogy um, that we maybe kind of read and we kind of shrug. It's just like they would have read this genealogy and thought, wow, this total boss who's, who's leading us here. Ezra is the, the son of Sariah and the son of Azariah and so on until we get to Aaron who, as you know, hopefully was the first high priest of Israel and the brother of Moses, who God gave the law to, law of Moses. So Ezra comes from this really important priestly line of Aaron, 
Um, we don't have time to, to get too deep into it this morning, but, but basically the priests, their job was to kind of be this in-between between God and the people. They were these mediators that represented the people to God and then represented God to the people. Essentially, they were tending to uh, the, the relationship of the people with God. Uh, incredibly important in this Levitical system. So the first five verses are telling us that Ezra is, is qualified for this role of reestablishing the Torah in the community. Um, keep an eye out for the, the Exodus parallels. Um, we won't get too deep in it this morning, but Ezra is this, this new Moses figure who's leading this, this new Exodus from slavery, from exile back into uh, the promised land. So more of that to come. Um, what else does the text tell us about who Ezra is? Here's this priest who's been living in exile. Um, yes, he comes from a pretty significant family line, but, but God seems to choose him to do some extraordinary things. He chooses him to be this, this reformer. He comes and, and he ministers to this struggling community, these people who have, who have failed in the past to be faithful to God. And, and here they are. They've been given a, another chance, right? And, and they are... Um, uh, given, given another chance, the, the temple is back, they're, they're, they're starting to go again, but it seems like they are teetering on making the exact same mistakes again that they made in the past. So, so God uses Ezra to, to come to, to, to bring about stability, to, to put them on the right path again, and to try to restore them. But why does he choose him? That's what I want to look at today. Why was Ezra used by God? Um, verse 6 tells us a little bit more about him. And um, we're told Ezra was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Okay? So he's a scribe. He's, he's some kind of secretary who is skilled in the law of Moses. It, 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 he's an expert in the law. It means he is quick. He is swift and resolute in the law of Moses. Okay? Verse 6 goes on to tell us something else about him. It says, the king granted him all that he asked. So it seems like Ezra is some kind of official, some kind of aide to the king. Um, he has the ear of the king. Not anyone has the ear of the king. Not anyone can make requests of the king, let alone have them, have, have them granted. Um, some scholars think that Ezra maybe had this, this role of secretary of Jewish affairs in the Persian Empire. So remember that this massive Persian Empire is over many regions, many countries, many people groups, and their way of kind of ruling over them was to kind of let each country, each people group have a bit of autonomy, let them kind of go about their ways and, and kind of worship as they, they want to. Um, so it makes sense that this Persian pagan king would need some, some Jewish people who would, who would ways and he would know the culture and know the religion to, to help advise him. So quite possibly that was Ezra's role to the king. Um, we don't know exactly. It's not really the main point. What we know is God is using Ezra. He's choosing him to do this important work. We're told twice in verse 6 and verse 9 that the hand of the Lord was on him. That's amazing. But why? Why was the hand of the Lord on him? Was it because he was this priest that came from this significant line? Was it because he had this, this significant role within the Persian Empire, this kind of insider role? Thankfully, the text doesn't 
let us guess. It actually clearly tells us why God uses Ezra, and it tells us in verse 10. So verses 7 to 9 give us this kind of snapshot of his journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Um, chapter 8, which we'll look at next week, gives us like more detail of that journey. But, but Ezra is chosen for this role by God, and the end of verse 9 says, the good hand of his God was on him. And then in verse 10, it tells us why. Why was the gracious hand of God on Ezra? Verse 10 starts with four. Another way to say that is because. It says, because Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So it's really three reasons, right? Because Ezra set his heart to study God's word, to do God's word, and to teach God's word. So we're just going to quickly look at those three reasons. Um, Firstly, Ezra studied God's word. Um, There's a story I love about Harry S. Truman. Um, If you don't know who Harry S. Truman was, he's the 33rd president of the United States. Um, He was the vice president to Franklin Delano Roosevelt during World War II, pretty significant time in in world history. Um, He assumed the office of the presidency after FDR's death. one of the most crucial periods in the 20th century. Um, you're, you're looking at Truman has this decision to, to drop the atomic bombs. Um, he has this, um, he's, this, he's kind of navigating the end of World War II. He's implementing the Marshall Plan, which is essentially to rebuild the economy in Western Europe after uh, the war. He's establishing NATO. He, he's <laughs> navigating the Korean War. Uh, the potential spread of communism, you have the start of the Cold War, uh, the call of civil rights in the U.S. Like, what an incredibly crucial time. What, how much pressure Truman must have felt? How, much, how busy would this man have been? Um, and Truman was, among other things, a great letter writer. Um, he wrote countless letters. And, and um, if you go online to the Truman Library, you can actually read um, some personal correspondence between Truman and his wife. Uh, because Truman said to his wife that every day that they were apart while he was president, that he was going to write her a letter. Um, very romantic guy. Um, and you can actually read these letters, and there's thousands of them. And when you read them, it becomes clear that it didn't matter what this man was doing. Um, it didn't matter who he was in the presence of, what great world power he was in the company of. He would always find time for his wife. He would always excuse himself to make sure he would write to his wife. Not because he had to. He did this out of love. Um, And I think that helps kind of give us an aspect of Ezra's study of God's word. Because verse 10, it doesn't simply say that he studied God's word. It's not dry like that. Um, Verse 6 maybe is a little bit, right? It says he was a scribe who was skilled in the law of God. But verse 10 gives us some emotional reason behind it. And different translations of the Bible put it in slightly different ways. The NIV says in verse 10, he devoted himself to the study of God's word. And the NASB says he firmly resolved to study it. And so it wasn't a dull obligation to do this. And this, this was the, the, the primary love of this man's heart. Um, And I think the ESV gives us the best translation. It's this closest kind of word-for-word translation of the Hebrew. It says, Ezra set his heart to study. 
And Ezra didn't study God's word out of academic reputation. It wasn't to gain knowledge for the sake of gaining knowledge. And this is, this is a man who is so in love with his God that he is pouring over the scriptures. He is a person who is, who is passionate about God's word. And we actually get an insight into the way that he went about doing this. And we have an insight into the manner in which Ezra studied scripture and because the, the scribe here, it, was, it, wasn't just, it wasn't just a cursory flicking through Scripture. Um, it wasn't just a kind of opening up the Bible and kind of casually landing on a verse to see what it might say. Now, the word study that's used in verse 10, it's this Hebrew word that suggests a very deliberate, careful seeking through Scripture. It's, it's this carefully and deliberately inquiring and investigating this book. It's, it's not just reading it to see what it says. It's, it's seeking it for application. Um, I love this, the, the Hebrew word for study. It can also mean to allow oneself to be inquired of only by God. So, so it suggests that it's not just Ezra studying and reading the Scripture. It's Ezra letting the Scripture read him. This is what Ezra has set his heart to, studying God's word, pouring over God's word carefully and deliberately, and letting the word read him. So his, his, he wasn't after mere head knowledge. He was after heart transformation. He, he wants to open himself up to change. He is humbly studying God's word, seeking for application. Which is actually exactly what the next point says. He not only set his heart to study God's word, he has set his heart to do it. He, he, he does it. He, he lives it. He is obedient to it. He applies it to his life. It's not just something that he knows. It's something that he does. And that Hebrew word in verse 10 for do, I try not to do too much of like the, here's what the Hebrew word means of this, but it's just too good not to share. Um, the original word, I wouldn't want to be a Bible translator. It's difficult work. I'm going to have to choose this, this one English word, this ancient Hebrew word. Um, but that original word for do, it carries this meaning of to make or to work, to produce. This is what setting your heart to this kind of study of God's word does. It produces something in you. You begin to bear fruit. You begin to be, be fruitful. And if you know your Bible even a little bit, where, where does that bring your mind to? Be fruitful. Genesis 1. Here's why you were made. Here's why God originally made you to be fruitful that's his mandate before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned and were expelled from his presence from the garden. But, but you keep reading, and, and if, if you've started a, a Bible, you might, be, you might have been by, here, read kind of Noah's story by now. Um, you get to Noah, 
The fall has really gotten out of control. The, the world is covered in, in wickedness. God decides to judge the world, wipe the, the, the slate clean. He starts over with Noah and his family. And after the flood, what does he tell Noah and his family do, to do? Be fruitful. Go, go and be fruitful. And then ever since, the message of the Bible is God telling us, if you want to be fruitful, be with me. If you want to be fruitful, not just a physical bearing fruit and multiplying, but if you want a a deep spiritual fruitfulness, be with me. That's the key to faithfully being fruitful is to be with me, to know me. And, And Ezra got that. Like Ezra understood that. Ezra is the Psalm 1 guy. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not according to the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of, of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That's Ezra kind of study. And someone says, this is what it produces in you. The person who, who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who, who's, who meditates on it day and night, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither. And all he does, he prospers. So the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. So Psalm 1 says, the way to be fruitful, the way to not wither away is to be with God, to, to know God. And the primary way of knowing him is by delighting in his law and meditating on it day and night. Jesus says the exact same thing in John 15. If you're sick of John 15, I'm sorry, more to come. He says, if you want to bear fruit, be with me. He says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. This is Psalm 1, right? The branches are gathered up, thrown in the fire and burned. They're useless. Verse 7, though, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. That's Ezra 7. That's, that's Ezra's kind of study. Letting the words seep in. Letting the words read, read you. He says, if you do that, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see how it all starts to wrap together here? Ezra understands this truth that to be fruitful, I have to know God. I have to be with him. To be fruitful, I have to not just know him, I have to obey him. I have to do what this word is saying. He understands that truth, and so he sets his heart to studying the word of God and doing it. Do you understand that? Do do you believe 
The Apostle Paul, when he says in 2, Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3, that all Scripture is God-breathed, that, that, it's, that it's all God-breathed, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work, that they'll be like Ezra. Do you actually believe, do you believe that God breathed out the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Do you believe that God breathed out Ephesians and then 1 Corinthians and Hebrews? Do you believe he breathed out Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, even Leviticus and Psalms and the prophets and Ezra and Nehemiah? If you believed that, Now, we would surely set our hearts on studying his word and letting it seep down into us, and and we would begin to be changed, and we would begin to produce that God-given fruit. It's exciting, isn't it? Like, it's exciting to, to have God's word. Ezra was excited about that. He, this, this was what he set his heart on. So I'll ask you again, do you want to be used by God? Is it a fundamental desire of your heart to be used by your God? Can that be said of you? Is it a fundamental desire of your heart to be used powerfully by your God? If it is, just look at this. We're told that the hand of God was on Ezra because he was passionately dedicated to the word of God. It's that time of year again. We start new Bible reading plans, um, which is good. I have. Um, and can I encourage you to approach that Bible reading in this kind of way? Like think about that Bible reading in this kind of way. That, that you don't do it just because you should. <laughs> you, you don't do it just because that's what God wants us to do and it's what Christians should do. That's, that's true. But it's reading and it's studying because this is how God uses us. This is how God actually uses us. And we too can develop that love that Ezra had for the living word of God. He sets his heart to studying God's word. He is immersing himself in scripture, not just reading and examining it, but letting the word read and examine him and transform him. He studies the word and he does the word. That's James 1.22, right? Don't be just hearers of the word, be doers of the word. And if you've ever taken a driving test, you know there's two parts of the test, right? The theory part of the test and the practical part of the test. And the, the point is to apply the theory to the practical, right? And that's what James 1.22 says. Don't just learn the theory and then throw it out the window when you start to go. No, it's the point of the theory is to apply it, to, to, to implement it. And that's what Ezra did. He was a doer of the word. He applied it to his life. Which is what you see in the next section. We don't have time to get into all of the king's decree. But, but in that letter, you basically see how Ezra will apply what he has studied in God's word to his life. And... Remember Ezra, some kind of aid to the king. And verse 6 says the king granted him all that he asked for. And so verses 11 to 26 are the king granting to Ezra all that he asked for. 
Seems like Ezra has asked Artaxerxes that he might return to Jerusalem and evaluate uh, Judah and Jerusalem according to the Torah. He's asked him that, that he'd send others who would be freely able to go as well. It seems like he's asked the king and his counselors to send silver and gold. What a bold request. He's asked that he can take these free will offerings, etc., etc. Artaxerxes' decree is him granting Ezra's requests. And did you notice as we read that how much references to the Torah there are in his decree? How much references to according to God's will, according to God's word are through that? Um, Ezra, uh, verse 14, Ezra is sent to make these inquiries according to the law of the Lord, which is in your hand, Ezra. Verse 18, he's to do whatever seems kind of good to, to do with the rest of the silver and the gold according to the will of your God. Verse 23, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven. Verse 25, Ezra is to appoint these judges and the, the magistrates according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. They're to teach the law of God to those who don't know it. And there's, there's actually judgment for those who don't obey the law of, the God, of, of God. That's a lot of applying the word, isn't it? Like, how will he do all of that unless he knows God's word? How will he implement this, this wisdom of God unless he has been with God's wisdom and, and studied it? How will he do all this unless he is devoted, unless he has set his heart to study and to obey and to do God's word. So it's important, isn't it? Not just to, to set your heart to studying God's word. And so that might look like you man, making time regularly to be in God's word and to read it. Okay, step one, great. But it's also important to set your heart on doing God's word. So, so that's probably looking like figuring out what's the application of what I've just read in my Bible. How do I do what I've just read? How do I apply it to my life? Are you doing that? Or are you just reading a few chapters, closing it up, and moving on with the rest of your day? Are are you reading and then listening? Like Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. You have the author of the book living in you. You don't read it alone. You read it with him. Are you listening to him? Are you asking yourself, what does this text say about how I should be living my life? What does it look like to be a doer of the word I just read? Lord, show me the ways I can live this out. Are you praying that? Are you asking that? I'm telling you, if you begin to, to slow down and to read your Bible that way and to ask those kinds of questions, you will bear fruit. Sometimes really rapidly, most of the time pretty slowly. Maturing is is slow, it's growing slowly. But God will powerfully work in your life if you learn to slow down and ask those kinds of questions. He studies God's word, he does God's word. And the last reason we see God used Ezra was because Ezra taught God's word. So read one more time. The end of verse 9, verse 10, the hand, of, the hand of God was on Ezra, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to obey it, to apply it, to do it, and he also set his heart to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. 
So Ezra was a scribe, we're told, and the role of the scribe kind of changed over time, but at this point in history, the role was to apply and to teach God's word to his people. Um, And later in in Nehemiah chapter 8, we have this beautiful picture where you see Ezra doing this. Um, the, The people they go into this kind of town square and they build a wooden platform for Ezra to, to open the word of God and to preach it. Um, it's this really beautiful scene where Ezra is teaching the word of God to the people and it says they helped the people to understand it. Okay? We have to read this with our like New Testament goggles on, right? Um, because... Paul says in Ephesians 4 that some are called to be apostles, some are called to be prophets, some evangelists, some are called to be pastors and teachers, right? There's a kind of variety of what that could look like, but, but at the same time, we are all as believers, like every single one of us in Jesus, we are called to make disciples. Every single one of us has been called by Jesus himself to make disciples, And that will involve a degree of teaching, a degree of sharing and and helping others to understand what you understand and and to to learn what God has taught you, what you've received from being shaped by his word. So for Ezra, this, this priest, this preacher, it looked like standing in that square on that stage preaching the word of God. What about for others though? Deuteronomy chapter 6 Uh, is my favorite example. It gives a really beautiful example of what this looks like for most of us. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So step one, love the Lord your God with everything that you have. With all of your heart, your soul, your might, set your heart on knowing him. This will look like immersing yourself in his word. Okay, these words shall be on your heart. Let it seep into you. Step one. Step two, Teach them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking down the road, when you're going to bed at night, when you're waking up. It should just pour out of you in normal, everyday moments. Teaching, discipling, as you do your ordinary lives. You see, here at Village, this is what discipleship mostly will look like. Um, yes, we preach the word on Sundays, that's crucial, that's, that's central, but it's where a fraction of all the teaching in this church happens, right? This church should be a congregation that, that seeks to disciple one another. That, that should be our goal and desire, right? That, that we are involved in discipling one another. We, we are involved in one another's spiritual lives. Are, are you older more mature Christians who have been on the journey for a while, are, are you actively and intentionally discipling younger Christians? You who are downstairs at times on a Sunday with our kids, I hope you don't see that as an arbitrary thing. Um, 
someone's got to look after the crazy kids, right, while we do the real work up here. No, it's this beautiful opportunity to teach them, to, to pass on what you've learned, disciple them. What an amazing opportunity. We need more people to get in on that opportunity. What about the, the, the conversations that you have after a gathering? Are they just small talk? Is it just a bit of banter? Or is there intentional discipleship happening? Are you encouraging one another? Are you sharing with one another? Are you bearing one another's burdens? Are you praying with one another? Are you laying hands on one another? Are you teaching one another? You see, the teaching and the discipling, it's not done, it cannot be done by one or two people at the pulpit on a Sunday. And if, if you're looking just to the elders for the discipleship in your life, you are going to be bitterly disappointed at our church. Our job is to equip you to do the work of ministry and discipleship. You see, Ezra was used by God because he was devoted to teaching the word of God. Um, friends, let's be a congregation that is prepared, that is ready, that is willing to teach others and to make disciples. You've been commissioned by Jesus. No matter how far along the journey you are, you've been commissioned by Jesus to do this. And what an exciting place this would be, right? What a, what a tremendous church this would be if we took that seriously. And just as we close, I have a couple more words. Um, and I want to ask, answer one more question. Um, and the question is why? Why should you and I as believers want to be used by God? Like you guys are phenomenal. You're doing amazing things out there. Why should you want to be used by God? Why, why should we care? Why should we want the gracious hand of the Lord upon us? Why should we want to be used by him? There's, there's only one answer to that question, and it's because of what he has done for you. Simply because of what he has done for us. And I mentioned Ezra is, it's this Exodus story, it's a retelling of the Exodus story, and the Exodus story is a template of this is what salvation looks like. And Ezra is this kind of new kind of Moses character, so it's looking back as it does this, but more importantly, it's looking forward. Ezra is pointing forward. And you, as, you and I have, as believers, we have been taken by the ultimate priest. We've been taken by the ultimate scribe, the ultimate teacher, the ultimate reformer, Jesus. And we've been taken hand in hand from our exile and our sin into the promised land of the presence of God. That's what he has done for us. And, and it's because of Jesus, it's because of his honor that you and I should, should want desperately to be used in the expansion of his kingdom and his glory and his honor, right? It's because of what he's done for us. And the primary way that that looks like, what that primarily looks like is knowing and doing and teaching the word of God as we go about our ordinary lives. Um, may we be a church that sets our heart on God's word. Um, prayer this year, lots of knowing him, lots of uh, abiding with him, lots of being in his presence. The first step of that, the primary way to do that is being in his word. 
Um, studying it, doing it, teaching it. Um, and I believe that if we do this, then Ezra's prayer in verses 27 and 28 will be our regular prayer. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who puts such a thing like this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me, it's getting personal here, first person, who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage for the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Like this way of life, this way of setting your heart on studying and doing and teaching God's word, it leads to worship. It doesn't lead to just head knowledge. It leads to this heart that's exploding, that's worshiping God. Blessed be God. He is wonderfully at work. Look at all he's doing. He's extending his steadfast love to us. And look at what he says in verse 28. I took courage. Anybody need some courage? Anybody need to be strengthened? I took courage for the hand of the Lord was on me. That's what we're after this year, is to know the hand of our God upon us and to be strengthened by that. That's all I want. Christian, do you want to be used by God? Do you want to know the steadfast love of God in your life? Do you want to be strengthened and grow in courage as followers of Jesus? Then set your heart to study God's word, to do God's word, and to teach God's word. Would you stand with me? We'll pray. And Lord, we thank you that you are not a God who is simply far off and, and so far above us and so holy. You are all of those things, but you are also a God who calls us to know you. He calls us to come so close to you. And the way you do that, the way you allow us to come close to you is through the death of Jesus on our behalf. Lord, may we remember the gospel and all of our uh, good intentions that we are wanting to do, wanting to improve, wanting to do great things in this world, all good things. May we remember the gospel. Your body broke, your blood poured out for us on the cross, giving us meaning, giving us identity, giving us everything that we need in you, Jesus. Thank you that we can know you. Um, God, give, give our people patience as we come close to you, as we learn to abide in you, learn to be with you, be powered by you. Um, give patience in that, Lord. Um, your person takes time to get to know a person. Um, would you help us, though, Lord? And pray for your presence powerfully uh, with us this year. Lord, may this be our first desire, to know you um, as we go about our work. And make us a people who love you, love your word, take your word seriously, find the time to be in your word, speak the word to each other, sing the word, listen to the word, and then to do it, 
and then to teach it. Um, You're so good to us, God. We thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.